As a young man, I was first given the opportunity to attend the Feast of Tabernacles with my parents. It was in Squaw Valley in 1960. It was my first year, and it was also the first year that the feast was kept in Squaw Valley. Mr. Herbert Armstrong came to the feast, and as he opened the feast, he asked the question, Why are we here? As a youth, I really did not have a great deal of interest in that except for the physical aspects of the feast, all the young ladies that I uh, suddenly saw around me, uh, all of the wonderful physical things that were given to us at the feast, and the beautiful environment of Squaw Valley. We have to ask ourselves that question every year because God has a purpose in the Feast of Tabernacles. Clearly part of that is to reveal to us His plan, His purpose in our life. But it also, brethren, is to help us to have a vision and an understanding that motivates and drives us through the year. When we examine the Scripture, it's interesting to see how God inspired His servants with literally at times a vision of what the future held. In the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 13, we see the words of Christ as He literally revealed to His servants that He would establish a church. And He started this dialogue by asking them a question. In verse 13 of Matthew 16, Christ said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, brother, that's also true today. We do not come to know and understand the true Jesus Christ except by God's revelation. By God revealing to us His Word and His truth and giving us an understanding. And if you're part of God's church, which you certainly are by God's calling, God's given you an understanding, a revelation. Now, He expands upon that with His holy days and with the Sabbath and through His laws. Christ revealed to Peter at this point in verse 18, I also say to you, that you are Peter. And the word Peter in the Greek is a reference to a small pebble or a small stone. And on this rock, and the word used here is Petra, and that word is not a small stone or a small rock. It's actually a, a very large building uh, stone or a foundational stone. And so Christ said, on this rock I will build my church. And his reference was directly to himself. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, as we read this, we also know that Christ was revealing to Peter that he would have a part in what God was building. That he was a part of that structure. He was a part of that building. Even as God has called us to be a part of the building of His church, of the bride of Christ, and of the very government that Jesus Christ will bring at His return. 
after having given this revelation to Peter, we find that Peter was still very carnal. And as Christ revealed further to him that he must suffer, Peter rebuked him. And Christ corrected him, as you can read in the Scripture. But as we move forward, we see that very quickly after this, it was six days later, it says in verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And so, he clearly had told his disciples that he would establish a church, that they would be the leadership of that church, and that he himself would be the, the head of that church. Six days later, he takes them up, specifically four individuals, or excuse me, Peter, James, and John, the three individuals, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. By this passage, we know that God's servants understood that being literally and seeing a vision of God's very kingdom, that they were to build a booth or a tabernacle, a dwelling place. Now, while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now Christ makes it very plain that what they had experienced was a vision given by God. Notice verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. You know, Jesus Christ inspired His servants by giving them a vision of what the future held. And as we come each year to the Feast of Tabernacles to worship God, to be taught of His way of life, to capture the picture of the very meaning of the feast, which is the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom and the millennial reign, a time of salvation for that portion of mankind who lives during that period. All of those lessons are to become a part of our thoughts, our purpose, our vision for the coming year. The Bible reveals to us in the book of Proverbs that vision is, is essential to success. Here in Proverbs chapter 29, in verse 18, it says, Where there is no revelation. Now, I'm reading from the New King James. In the King James, it says vision. In the New King James, it says, Where there is no revelation. It can also be translated as vision. Uh, I believe the uh, center marginal reference will bring that out. 
as prophetic vision in the New King James. It says, the people cast off restraint. And so, without a vision, people do not live their lives with the same purpose. They do not have the same motivation. They're not, uh, as the Scripture says, restrained in conduct. Now, the focus here is that through vision or through revelation or through looking to the future, that it literally affects our daily life today. Notice the second part of this verse. It says, happy is he who keeps the law. Now, it's very important for us to understand in God's church, our vision is God's revelation. We live in a world that has a completely and totally different vision of the future. In fact, many, many years ago, Mr. Armstrong was inspired to write the context of a booklet titled 1975 in Prophecy. Mr. Armstrong did not select that title because of looking and trying to set a date, but in society at that time when that booklet was published, the world looked to 1975. And of course, what they envisioned was a completely different world than the reality of what 1975 was like. Today, we seem to, in our society, have lost that kind of spirit. In fact, most people today in our world wonder, what does the future hold? Because we live with a world beset by problems and trials. We wonder, do we have enough fuel? Will there be enough food? How are we going to solve the problems that are part of a rapidly multiplying population? How are we going to solve the problems of nations that have been embittered with hatred. And we don't have the answers. And so we live in a society that has, in fact, in my lifetime, changed from one that held a positive vision of the future to one that today is clouded with doubt. God's given us a very clear vision. And each year as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, that vision is renewed, it's nourished, and through the messages we receive, is strengthened in our lives. So God's given us a vision and a purpose, and it needs to be our focus, not only through the feast, but rather it needs to become our focus during the coming year. And it's God's intent that it would be. Here in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, and in verse 15, God reveals to us His purpose and His vision. Now, there are many other scriptures in the Bible that bring this out. And it's very important that we have that clearly in our mind. Here in verse 15, it says, Therefore, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord or excuse me, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in a knowledge of Him. And so, <clears throat> one of the things the Apostle Paul literally prayed for, for the brethren, was that God would give them wisdom, but He would also give them a, a vision or a revelation within the knowledge of Him. And that's extremely important, that our vision is God's revelation. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. And so the Apostle Paul prayed for God's brethren that he served, that they would have wisdom, that they would have a vision and understanding, and that it would motivate them. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews reveals to us that that vision, that clear understanding of God's purpose motivated his servants. And in this particular case, in Hebrews chapter 11, we find a history of those that are used to us as examples of faith. And they included God's servants such as Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah. And it goes on, and of course, in this chapter, in a very broad statement, includes all of those who served God, who were willing in a courageous manner to put God first in their life. In this chapter, in chapter 11, speaking specifically here of Abraham, but also of those who had the same spirit, it says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So the Scripture tells us that they saw them. They were afar off. But it wasn't something that was out of their sight. It was something literally that they could see. They understood. It was not right around the corner. We live in a time when we have a different perception. We realize that we live in the last days of this age. And we can see that by the many physical things that line world events, what is happening in the world about us with God's Word. In verse 14, it says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. It was interesting that God had given many physical blessings to Abraham and many wonderful promises, even at the physical level. But Abraham's focus was not on the physical things that God had promised. His focus and what he embraced and what excited Abraham was God's very kingdom. It's the very same thing, brethren, that God wants us to be excited about. He wants us to embrace. He wants us to confess in terms of our daily life that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. So the Feast of Tabernacles has a very clear purpose in terms of what God wants accomplished in your life. And that is He wants you to embrace His plan. He wants you to become a part 100% in all aspects of your life, of what He is doing. So our very presence is a testimony to God as we keep the feast, as we observe what 
He has commanded and He has instructed that our knowledge, our presence, our awareness of keeping the days that He has set aside to be holy, holy, it's a testimony to God and a confession that we seek His kingdom. There's another example in the Bible that's also very interesting because it introduces another aspect of vision and what vision requires. And it's the example of of Paul himself. And also, well, let me also go first to an example of uh, a man that God inspired who faced death at the hands of Paul. And that was his servant Stephen. That's here in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. Because this was the beginning of a sequence in the Scripture that in both situations uh, required or involved a vision given by God, but also lessons that we can learn from that have to do with our vision, our ability to see and to grasp what God is doing and what He has planned for the future. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, we pick up the story of Stephen. It tells us here in verse 8 that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And he had been ordained as a deacon, one who was there to serve, and yet he also was a man full of God's Spirit. This is brought out uh, also uh, not only here in verse 8, but also in verse 5. Now, because he was filled with God's Spirit, he was filled with the very Word of God, we find that he spoke out, and he was bold and courageous with the truth. We find as you read the account that there were some from what is called the synagogue of freedmen. So there was a, a specific synagogue that began to dispute with Stephen as he spoke out. In verse 10, it says, They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And so they could not discourage him, and they could not refute his words. Obviously, God gave him a great deal of wisdom. And so when they would produce clever arguments, God would help him to see through them very plainly. And undoubtedly, this frustrated them greatly. In their frustration, verse 11, it says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so, because they could not confound him in some manner, or some way discredit him, they literally stirred up the people, they stirred up the leadership against him through lies. And they set up false witnesses. Notice verse 13, the Scripture very plainly tells us that they set up false witnesses, individuals to come and to lie and to bring slander against Stephen. And as a result of this, uh, he was brought before the council. In chapter 7, in verse 1, we find here that the high priest asked him, Are these things so? Now, he was inspired by God. And so when he was put in this public forum and had this opportunity to address the accusations, God inspired him to be very bold 
very outspoken and very courageous. In doing this, we know that it put his life in peril. And in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7, he came to the point where he literally confronted them. Before he had been preaching and expounding what God had done, and then he confronted them and their part in it, because these men represented the spiritual leadership of Israel, a nation, a people who possessed the Word of God. And they did not turn their back on God's Word. They rather claimed that they embraced it, that they used it, but in fact they did not. As Jesus Christ said, they were extremely hypocritical. And so he confronted them. In verse 51, he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. That's an interesting statement because it appears here that if they had a different heart and a different spirit, that God would have been more willing and would have worked with them. But they did not have such a spirit. Verse 52, it says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The audience, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. The reason they were cut to the heart is because it was true. And they could not deny it. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so being full of God's Spirit, being in this physical situation where his life was in jeopardy, God literally gave Stephen a vision of what it would be like to see the very glory of God and be in God's presence in his kingdom. And he, that excited him. He literally forgot the moment. He, literally, he spoke out and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, when this took place, those who he had clearly indicted by their conduct, it says, verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59, They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So his heart, his attitude, his service toward God, even to his last breath, was very clear. Notice verse 60, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He truly was a servant. Not only to those that he served in the church of God, he was a servant to his fellow mankind. And that very spirit and that example is one that, with the knowledge and truth we have, is one reason it's so important, brethren, that Mr. Armstrong always understood that if you truly see and understand the, God's purpose, and you know, know that Jesus Christ is going to establish His kingdom, and that the work of the church of God is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, 
that your heart would be a part of that. That a true Christian would have the very spirit that Stephen had. That his heart would be in that message. His heart would be in that work. And what God is doing. And so Stephen gives us an extremely positive example of part of the lessons and part of the experience of what should take place in our life because of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in conjunction with this, we find scripturally that then God intervened in the life of this young man named Saul. In Acts chapter 9, in chapter 8, you read that Saul went about then persecuting the church of God. And he became a very great threat to God's people. And he, with the knowledge and education, and apparently the contacts he had, was able to physically get authority and to get granted the necessary documents that he needed to give him that authority to persecute God's church, whether men or women, and to bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's brought out in chapter 9 and verse 2. We read as he journeyed in doing this, in verse 3 of chapter 9, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you? It's interesting how Saul responded especially when you consider going back where we started this sermon in Matthew chapter 16 with the question Jesus Christ asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And of course, they realized that he was the very Son of God. He was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Saul did not know that. But he asked the question. He says, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus. I I suspect that that was a stunning revelation to Saul. Because he was persecuting God's people, thinking that he did God's service. says, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the gourds. He was kicking against something. He was not going to make any impact because of the very hand of God. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He immediately had a change of heart. He immediately became willing to have a different spirit. The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. God blinded him. He was a man who did not see, who in darkness, thinking he was doing God's service, uh, no doubt very sincere, but sincerely wrong. God blinded him physically. Now, there's a very clear lesson in this, and obviously that lesson was for Saul, who became God's servant, the Apostle Paul. But it's also a lesson recorded for us for understanding. Because of his blindness, it says, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. You know, someone who is blind and has learned to adapt to blindness, 
uh, can often walk. Uh, sometimes it's better with the aid of another, but uh, they've learned to cope with that handicap. But someone who is suddenly blinded and is used to having sight, uh, it's very awkward, very difficult. We read in verse 9, it says, He was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. So he immediately started fasting. He understood God's word. He simply did not understand who Jesus Christ was. He did not understand from the Scripture the things that God had blinded Israel in, the things that they did not see, did not understand. But he did understand the principle of fasting. In verse 10, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting a hand on him so that he may receive his sight. And so, again we see through vision, God gave a vision to his servant Ananias, but at the very same time he also was giving a vision to Saul to realize that he was sending someone to him. In verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So this provoked fear to a certain extent in Ananias, but God reassured him, says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so we read that Ananias in verse 17 obeyed the vision and the instruction of God. He went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, he had never met the man, but he accepted him through God's word as a brother in Christ. Says the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting that in Saul's calling, God made it very clear to him that there was a blindness that was a part of his time and his generation, and that God's revelation to him was one of giving him light, of removing him from that darkness and that blindness and opening his eyes. And so God literally, in the calling of the Apostle Paul, used vision to impart understanding. And that's certainly true of God's holy days. As we observe them, they portray events that God allows us to see but brethren, it's very important that that vision inspires us. Vision requires light. You do not see without light. And as much as that is also true physically, it is also true spiritually. And that's important for us to understand in the work that we do, in our relationship to family, 
But it's extremely important for us to understand that in our own personal spiritual life. That the vision that God's given us comes from the light of His Word. It comes from the understanding that He has granted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we see it's through God's Holy Spirit that we are able to spiritually see and discern. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, As it is written, I was speaking of this world, it says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. See, through God's Spirit, God has given us spiritual sight. He has given us the ability to understand. It's interesting, Mr. Armstrong kept the Feast of Tabernacles for a number of years. It was in obedience to God that he began to understand their purpose, their reason. It's also interesting to know that Mr. Armstrong kept the Holy Days for seven years as a church pastor He would leave the congregation because no one would go with him, take his family, and observe God's festival. And I remember many, many years ago hearing his son make a comment about that. He said, in terms of his family and and how they viewed it, they more or less thought their dad was a kook. That he was, you know, because no one else did it. Now, as he continues steadfastly in obedience with the understanding that God had given to him, then over time, in fact, I think it was seven, if I remember correctly, it was exactly seven years after that, the first families began to join Mr. Armstrong in observing the Feast of Tabernacles. And then through time, God then gave a clear understanding that today we take for granted because we understand their purpose. We understand the picture of each of God's holy days, how they fit together and how they literally reveal to us God's plan of salvation. Vision requires light, and it, it requires that we walk in the light. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1, It says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. God's not allowed us or, or left us in the darkness of this world so that this day should overtake you as a thief. It says, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Your very presence, the fact that you're listening to this message, 
makes it very clear that God has opened your understanding, that He has given you light, and He has given you His truth. In John chapter 12, in verse 35, in John 12, verse 35, Christ brings out the importance of not taking light for granted. There's many spiritual truths that at times people have taken for granted. They've not really taken the time to thoroughly prove and study, to investigate, and to be well-founded in God's Word. When you take something for granted and you do not cherish it, and you do not treasure it, brethren, it's easily taken from you. Here in verse 35, Jesus said to them, He said, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When God gives light, do not take it for granted. Act upon it. Use it. If you do not use it, then very clearly in the Scripture, that vision, that understanding, that which has been imparted to you can be taken away. And it's very clear in the, in the Scripture, this has to do with our conduct. How God's truth, how His knowledge impacts the things we do day to day. In John chapter 3, in verse 19 says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light. That's an interesting Reality that when someone begins to observe God's commandments, their understanding increases. And when you begin to keep God's Sabbath, it's a tremendous step forward in understanding as opposed to simply recognizing in the Scripture that Saturday is the Sabbath of the Bible. The same thing is true of God's holy days. When you observe God's holy days, and every year that you observe them, your understanding increases. Now, it's not outside of the foundation of the initial understanding given to you because truth remains truthful. It remains the same. But, brethren, you begin to see more. You begin to recognize and understand more than you did, let's say, the very first year that you kept God's Sabbath or the first year you kept His holy days. Each year that you, you observe them and keep them, your understanding should increase. It says, He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. We read in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 11. You know, the Apostle John lived in a time when many people departed from the truth. And in his epistle, his letter, 
he literally goes back to the very beginning and talks about the time that he spent with Jesus Christ, when he literally could physically touch him and he walked with him and he was taught by him. And he went down to, back to the foundational things that were important to God's people. One of those areas that he clearly identifies was that of simply being obedient. An individual who walks in the truth and in the light that he has been given. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1 he says, My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. And so the very message of the feast should inspire us in our obedience and our relationship to God. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, John made it plain. He wasn't teaching something new. And your brethren, during the feast, especially if you've attended 15, 20, 30 years, it's easy to come to the feast and, and take the attitude, well, I'm not going to hear anything new. And sometimes I've seen that attitude in individuals and, and really not drink in of the nourishment that God provides. And John, God's servant here, he, he wasn't bringing something new. He made it very plain. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. But you know something, brother? He saw the need and the importance of repeating it. And he also recognized the importance that that message be received and be embraced, be held as a treasure. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he said, He who hates his brother is in darkness. But you know, when you are affected by God's Word, where it begins to affect your relationship and your spirit toward others. It's truly taking a root in your heart. It's changing your life. It's changing how you think. And that's what God desires. And that comes because we treasure God's Word. We embrace it. We allow it to be the that which impacts our thinking and our life. We live in a world today which wants to change how we think. It seems like a tremendous crusade to change how we think about various issues that when you look at God's Word are very, very important. Whether it has to do with family and marriage, whether it has to do with how we rear our children. You know, the very things that we read in God's Word that God has a focus on. That we would become His family, that we would be His children, that we would understand our God as a Father. In our society, those very institutions, those very messages are being diluted by Satan. And I could go on about all types of areas of conduct, of ways of thinking. We're taught 
in our society not to be judgmental of areas that, within God's Word, God has made judgments. Whether it has to do with one's sexual conduct or manner of life, the Bible's very clear. It has a very specific message. And we embrace that and we see the, its goodness and how it's wholesome because of God's Word. We read in the Scripture that the Bible tells us to discipline our children. We live in a society that views that as a very negative thing. We read in the Scripture how God teaches us about the relationships in terms of respect and how we are to hold and honor the elderly and how we're to respect and honor our parents. And we live in a society, again, which is destroying that kind of respect, honor, the very principles that the Bible teaches us. And so God wants us to be impacted by His truth. He wants us to embrace it. In verse 11, as we, I'll read again, it says, He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, darkness blinds. Disobedience to God spiritually blinds someone. And unfortunately, as God's servant, the Apostle John, saw at the end of that age that he lived in, he saw a great deal of spiritual blindness of people who lived in a time that we generally look at as a, a century of truth. The, the generation in which Jesus Christ walked this earth. And today, in the time in which we live, there have been many, many people who received the truth, but today are in blindness. They've returned back to this world in many cases, keeping Christmas and Easter. But you know, in doing that, the reason is, is because they did not continue in obedience. So vision requires a close walk with God. And that's one of the very, again, the motivations of the feast. That it inspires us, it lifts us, it helps us to walk close with God. It puts our eyes on His promises, the things that He has promised to us. And brethren, that focus motivates our life. And that's the third point that I would like to bring out, is that our vision must motivate us and inspire us to action. As a young man, I enjoyed a lot of sports, and uh, they, they were something that physically I spent a great deal of time trying to perfect. But one of the things I learned in playing various games, is that if you have a goal, if you want to hit a ball, you have to see it clearly. If you want to make a basket and you're playing basketball, you cannot just look in the general direction of the basket and believe that you're going to succeed. You have to look at a very specific point. And the more you narrow your vision, the smaller you make your target, the more likely you are to hit the target. So if you're looking at a basket, which may be several, you know, eight, I, I don't know the exact uh, legal uh, size of the basketball goal, but it's, it's a considerable uh, distance. But if you look at that basket and all you see is the, the large basket of somewhere around 13 or 14 inches or whatever it may be, and that's all you see, it's very easy to hit it off to the side. But if you look at it and you look at the very center of it, 
and you make it as small as possible, and that becomes your target, it focuses your mind, and it focuses your body. And then when you shoot, you literally shoot the basket. The result of that is you may miss your exact target just slightly, but it will still go in and score a goal. The same thing is true of hitting a baseball. If you look at the ball and all you see is just the, the, the round ball, the reality is you probably, you may well hit it, but you will foul it off. Or you may not hit it in a solid manner. It might be a pop-up or a weak grounder. To be effective, you have to hit that ball exactly in the center. And to do that, it requires a focus. God wants us to succeed. And to succeed spiritually, brethren, you have to be focused. You have to have a clear focus, not just a general idea. And so during the feast, we hear messages that clarify our focus, that give us detail about God's kingdom, that give us understanding about our spiritual life. Because with that kind of focus, with a clarity of focus, it literally directs our conduct, it directs and coordinates our motion, and it makes us far more effective in what we do. In Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul wrote, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And brother, we know that we're holy before God and without blame through forgiveness. But we know that forgiveness that God's extended should inspire us to obedience and to righteousness. Verse 4 Excuse me, verse 5, it says, having, been predestin or having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. But God's call us into the body, into the church, into the Beloved. As we read on verse 7, it says, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. So God revealed in the New Testament His purpose and His plan to His servants. And we know today that God's given us a tremendous amount of understanding in terms of the history that we have of God's people. Now, our history is very incomplete in certain times and periods because God's people have always been small, persecuted, and quite often the very things they taught were distorted and twisted by others. We've had the same kind of experience, and we should understand that regarding other times and generations of God's people through history. So that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, 
being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his or to the counsel of his will. And so God has given us an inheritance, a promise. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so that God would use us and that our conduct and our reaction to the action that God has taken in our life would literally lead to the fulfillment of his purpose. You know, God's given us promises, brethren. He wants us to be assured of. In Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and starting in verse 13, this is emphasized by the Apostle Paul again here to the Hebrew brethren. It says, For when God made a promise in Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now that's not true today. We have to have it in writing. And if it's writing, and it has been approved by a court decision, and we go through a very, uh, you might say, intense legal uh, format before we will confirm something in our society. But there was a time when men gave their word. Uh, they would shake perhaps their one another's hand to confirm that word, and that was good as gold. And when we read the Scripture, we, we see this very kind of spirit, that a man's word, that his commitment should be good. And so... And Paul lived in such a generation. It says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The Feast of Tabernacles is designed in part by God to remind us of that hope, to be a picture of His kingdom, a time when we literally come out of this world, we separate ourselves, we come together as God's people, the brethren, together, for the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, we rejoice before God. And that we have our fellowship, an opportunity to fellowship in a manner that we would not have through the rest of the year. God also has physically provided that we have the funds so that we can be of a giving spirit. So we're... At times, we may not be able and could not afford to take someone else out or pick up the check or help a widow or perhaps to treat the children of another family or, or to buy gifts within our own family. That God's given us the funds to rejoice before Him, to do the things that we would desire to do as God's servants, as the very children and people of God. And so... God literally 
given us a hope, is set before us, is renewed each year at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. It becomes something that you depend on. You know, an anchor for a boat is a type of security or safety. If you're in rough seas, an anchor provides for you security and safety. If you're literally dashed on the rocks, that is a great peril and one of the greatest dangers you have on the water. is not the water itself, it's literally the impact and the force of the water crushing you against the shoreline. And quite often the practice would be, if we know there's going to be a storm, is either to take the boat to safe harbor, you take it completely out of harm's way, or if you cannot do that, you take it away from land, you take it out to sea. Now, when a person's out in the sea, and the depths are, let's say, beyond normal reach, they have a different type of anchor. There's literally an anchor that's used. It's called a drift anchor, and it, it points and you attach it to the bow of a boat, and it holds that bow in position. And so no matter what kind of force comes to the boat and buffs it about, it keeps it pointed in a safe direction. And so all of the, the design of the boat, the lift of the boat, the uh, safety of it is completely uh, protected. Because if a boat becomes broadside to a wave uh, and it loses any kind of drag, it immediately is in peril of being rolled over. And so there's an anchor that you use. One is to anchor a boat in position. So if you're approaching shoreline, you can literally hold your position. But there's another anchor, a drift anchor, that holds the boat itself in position. So it can ride out a storm. It can go through rough weather. It can go through the perils of rough water. And sometimes, rather, that's the situation we find ourselves in. Sometimes we don't always have a safe harbor in life. Sometimes we go through trials. But, you know, God's promises keep us pointed in a safe direction. And yes, we may be buffeted, we may suffer, we may even suffer some damage that we have to repair. But there's a safety when you have an anchor, a drift anchor, that holds you in a proper and a safe position. And so, the understanding given here in the statement, I know the Apostle Paul lived in a time when people regularly were on the sea, he traveled on the sea, so he understood the instruments used, and there are different types of anchors. One is to hold that boat in position. The other is to hold it safety or in safety in rough conditions. It says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, by, and, which, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever. Notice we have an example. And that's Jesus Christ. And of course, as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the very focuses we will have is on Jesus Christ as our King, our Lord, and our Savior. That He set an example for us, that His eyes were on the very Kingdom of God. One of the other interesting things I'd like to bring out, brethren, 
is that John, whom I read of earlier, who lived at the very end of his age in the church of God, uh, he was the surviving apostle, the one who led God's people after the leadership that had initially been established physically by Christ to lead the church, had either had all died by martyrdom. John continued. And it's interesting how God inspired John at the very end of his life because it had to be very discouraging. So I'd like to point out a vision also that God had given. Now, the entire book of Revelation is a vision given to John. But contained in the book of Revelation is a vision that particularly had to be very inspiring to John as, his, as a servant of God who is now imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Because here he was, having had lived a very full life and seen many things take place, found himself limited in physically what he can do, but he was also imprisoned. And in that situation, we find, and once again, I'd like to point out how God used the vision to motivate and to inspire. And I have to believe that this was extremely inspiring to John. So he saw in vision and understood that he did not live in the last days. I think that was made plain to him by the very physical things that he saw. They were not a, time, a part of his time, a technology that was not a part of his society. And he did not even know physically how to describe except to say, like this and like that. But in that vision, God took him all the way, notice to Revelation chapter 21, to the time of the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose for man. Not just the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, but rather to the new heavens and new earth. When God had completed his entire plan and purpose for this earth, for the physical life of his servants, those who, who are now his family. And he took John forward to this period of time. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 10, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so he saw the very government of God, the mountain of God, and the holy Jerusalem, the city of God. And then he begins to see this in detail. And I'd like to point out to you in verse, as he saw the details of the city, verse 14 says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You know, God inspired John and allowed him to see literally into the future. And what John saw, as he saw the new heavens and new earth, and he saw the government, the mountain of God, now filled with the members of the very family of God. And seeing holy Jerusalem, he saw the names of those men he walked with in this life. Peter and John. James, Bartholomew. But you know, brethren, he also saw the name John, his name. And that had to be extremely inspiring. And as we keep God's feast and we obey God, I think we need to recognize, brethren, God's given us a vision of what the future holds, not just for mankind, 
But if we're faithful and we're steadfast, it's a picture of our future. The fulfillment of our dreams and our hopes that we embrace as we confess as God's church and as His people that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. 